Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. This evening we'll be looking together at verses 13 uh, through 23. Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23, as we continue our way uh, through this first of the Gospels that we have uh, in our New Testament at Christmas time, uh, when we read different passages of uh, surrounding the birth of Christ, um, this is not a passage we hear uh, from year to year, uh, but this is nonetheless also uh, a passage uh, speaking about the coming of Christ, his birth, and all the events surrounding uh, what it means for Jesus to come uh, as, as the king. And so we read together tonight from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, at verse 13. This is directly after we've just read about those men from a far country of which we know not where, who've come to bow down and worship King Jesus. And so this is the word of God, Matthew 2, 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank you that we can come to the scripture knowing that these are uh, ancient words, uh, ever true words that are changing us, words that are used by your Holy Spirit uh, to transform us more and more into the image of our Savior. And so we pray tonight that uh, you would graciously do that very thing uh, in us through these words, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been introduced to the uh, uh, ancestors of the Christ. And you'll remember in chapter 1, we find, obviously, that all those ancestors are sinners. And uh, some of them are, are Gentiles. Uh, we've seen that Jesus, uh, when he was to be born, would be known by at least two names. He would be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, we've seen uh, last time that the first event in Matthew's gospel after the birth of Jesus uh, is this journey of men from afar to come and fall down and worship Jesus the King. Now, that's quite a start. Jesus, save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, God with us. And the king who's worshipped uh, by folks from, from a far country who come and bow down and give them the best they have. Now, with such a start to the gospel of Matthew, we might get the impression, if you were reading the gospel for the first time, uh, that the life of Jesus, Jesus, Emmanuel, King, you might get the impression up until uh, this point uh, that for Jesus, it's going to be nothing but wine and cheese, um, cake and coffee, trumpet fanfares, and rolled out red carpets. I mean, he is the Savior. He is God with us. He is King. In fact, what else would we expect for the Savior, God with us, and the King? I mean... What else would we expect but open arms, heads bowed low, and hearts humbled and thrilled at the news of his coming? After all, the Bible says he will save you from your sin. How else could he be received? Well, friends, in the answer to that question, and uh, the reality of what actually occurs here in Matthew's gospel, we have revealed to us really the whole, the whole dark problem and the history of the sin and the wickedness of men. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to hear Jesus telling a parable, uh, which would reveal that same dark problem. If you have your Bible open, and as I encourage you to do, please turn with me over to Matthew chapter 21. Later in this same Gospel, from the lips of Jesus, we're going to hear this parable, Matthew 21 at verse 33. And this is what Jesus will say. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. These are the prophets, by the way. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus would tell that parable later in this gospel. Jesus, of course, was speaking of himself. But it begins here in Matthew Chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Matthew chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus the king comes, uh, we need to remember that there is opposition to the king. 
There's opposition to the king. And we see here a move, uh, a stark contrast from love of the king's coming to hatred for the king's coming. In fact, I'm not sure you could write up a more vivid contrast between the heart and life of the wise men and the heart and life of Herod. Verse 10, you might remember if this chapter went like this regarding the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. When we come to Herod in verse 13, the angel tells Joseph, Herod is searching for the child to, in fact, destroy him. Now this, mind you, remember from a man who had made a, some kind of profession of faith. Back in verse 8, to the wise men, he, that's Herod, sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Liar, right? He wanted to destroy Jesus, but that didn't stop him from making some kind of common cause, right? Some kind of profession of faith that, no, I, I want to worship him. Whereas the Bible says, no, he, his heart was not for Jesus. Worship was the farthest thing from Herod's mind. Now, we already noted that Herod the king, remember he's referred to as Herod the king quite purposefully several times, would have perceived in Jesus' arrival to the throne. He had no intention of losing followers to a rival king. But we're reminded of the words of the the Apostle Paul. You might remember in uh, the letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is writing in that first chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, and this is what he says, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here's a king, and uh, he sees in Jesus, of course, a rival to his authority, a rival uh, to his, his throne. Now, it's not that the wise and the powerful and noble folks uh, in worldly standards cannot become Christians, uh, but the Bible is certainly pointing out to us, and it will throughout the New Testament, this, that when you're wise and powerful or of noble birth in this world, uh, your tendency uh, is to boast, to boast in yourself, and to draw attention to yourself. That's what pride is. And that's what we all suffer from. But if you have extra wisdom, if you have extra money, um, if you have extra resources or something like that, that just aggravates our, our sinful nature and our desire to, to boast in ourselves and to be proud in ourselves and not to want to uh, have anything to do with a rival to the throne of our life. That we are the king. We are the master. Pride lying at the heart of Herod. When does the male peacock spread out its feathers? Uh, when it's trying to attract the attention of pea hens, right? And out go the feathers in all their, uh, all their colors and eye spots for the pea hens to see. Look at me, not look at another. This is why Geoffrey Chaucer in the 13th century in a story of the Reeves' tale says, as any peacock 
he was proud and gay. That's one of the first references in literature to the use of the peacock as a symbol of pride. In other words, it's hard to be a Christian who boasts in the Lord when you're busy boasting in yourself. And Herod sees nothing in Jesus, not someone to worship as king and submit himself to, but all he sees is a rival to his authority. And we do that too in our own heart, right? If we're thinking of ourselves as autonomous, we make our own rules, we decide they are our own way to live, we are the master and commander of our fate, and along comes another king. And we don't want to give up that throne, how hard it is for the rich and kings and presidents and the prideful, said Jesus, to enter the kingdom of God. Well, clearly Herod is in no mood to worship Jesus. His heart is filled with hate and a desire to destroy, the angel tells Joseph, so you need to flee. The opposition, of course, to the true king is as old as the Garden of Eden, where the Lord God himself said to the serpent, I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That enmity goes back to the garden. It's, uh, it's an enmity powerfully pictured in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. You'll remember uh, these words from Revelation chapter 12 in the picture of the, the dragon. And this is what we read, Revelation 12, 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And then the Bible says this, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to, oh, here we go, one who is to rule all the nations. It's Jesus. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. The devil seeks to swallow up this male child. Well, an angel of the Lord warns Joseph, and they flee Bethlehem uh, for Egypt. This is what we read, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. This is why we know that when the wise men come to see Jesus, Jesus is not the baby in the stall. Um, he's about two years old at this time. This is why Herod kills all the male children at least two years old and under to make sure he doesn't miss Jesus somewhere here in Bethlehem or in all the region. But just think of this for a minute. The Son of God... Savior, Emmanuel, the king, had to flee. Right? Just think of how, how this demonstrates the humility. We confessed this a couple of weeks ago. The humility and humiliation of Christ. That he takes the form of a servant. And think about this. Herod, uh, who could only live and breathe and exist, the Bible says. Remember, Colossians says that um, it's in Christ that all things hold together. Herod can't breathe. Herod can't issue a command unless he's upheld somehow by the sovereign power of God in Christ himself. And here he is, even though he's upheld by Christ, uh, seeking to destroy 
Christ, uh, trying to snuff out the life of his creator, and Jesus has to flee for his life with Joseph and Mary. But for all the two-year-old and under male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, the Bible said, Herod killed them all. Do you understand why this passage is not a popular one at Christmas time? And yet this is just as much of the Christmas story. Yes, wise men come and and worship Jesus. They bow bow down and fall down to worship. Uh, But there's someone else looking for Jesus. And when he doesn't get his hands on Jesus, well, he wants to get his hands on Jesus. He kills all the children he can find. You may be surprised to hear this, believe it or not, but if you're asked by someone, you know, which figure, which person from the ancient world, uh, you know, would we have the most primary evidence of original sources from, you know, that we can read about his life? You might think, well, Jesus, or Paul, or Caesar Augustus, or Alexander the Great, or something like that. No, it's Herod the Great. Um, Josephus gives us two whole book scrolls on the life of Herod the Great. And that's more primary material than we have on anyone else in ancient history. So we know that Herod, um, Herod was a paranoid tyrant. He ended up killing three of his sons on suspicion of treason. He put to death, we're told, his favorite wife. He had ten wives. He put to death the favorite one for some reason. He killed one of his mothers-in-law, drowned a high priest, killed several uncles and a couple of cousins. And there was the supposed plot of Herod to kill a stadium full of Jewish leaders. This is the Herod of Matthew chapter 2. While this Herod dies, and again, an angel of the Lord directs Joseph and his family uh, to return to Israel, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so the opposition to the king continues through the son of Herod. He too is in opposition to Jesus. So Joseph and Mary are warned not to return to Bethlehem, but instead they return to Joseph and Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth is not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. Some kind of hick town uh, is where they're forced to go. Here's the thing. At the birth of Jesus, Matthew wants us to know that, yes, there will be those who come from afar to bow down and worship. And there will be those filled with hate who will seek to kill and, and destroy Peter tells us in uh, 1 Peter uh, 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, these words, as soon as I get there, 1 Peter 5, 8, these words, be be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember Revelation, the great dragon wants to devour the male child. And Peter says, well, we're called to be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's opposition to the king. Uh, There's opposition to the king's subjects. Uh, Alistair Crowley wrote this, one would go mad if one took the Bible seriously, but to take it seriously, one must be already mad, said Alistair Crowley. 
Friedrich Nietzsche said this, Christianity remains to this day the greatest misfortune of humanity. Uh, Nietzsche also said this, the pathetic thing that grows out of this condition is called faith. In other words, closing one's eyes upon oneself once for all. People erect a concept of morality, of virtue, of holiness upon this false view of all things. They argue that no other sort of vision has value anymore. Once they have made their sacrosanct with names of God and salvation and eternity, it's the most widespread, said Nietzsche, the most widespread, the most subterranean form of falsehood to be found on the earth. And he wrote, of course, in the late 19th century, this is what, this is what your neighbors believe, many of them. This is what many college students believe when they go off to secular university. Christianity, it's not used to be that Christianity was seen as something that was good for the country. Even if you didn't believe in Jesus, at least Christianity taught you morality and things like that. But no, no, this is what's believed now. Christianity is bad for the country. There's opposition to the king. There's opposition to the church. There's opposition to Jesus. There's opposition uh, to Christianity. But this is what Gene Veith says, Christian. He says this, no one can violently attack something without taking it seriously in some way. No one attacks belief in Zeus anymore. Do you run across articles on Zeus, how we shouldn't believe in Zeus? No, says uh, Veith. No one gets emotional over the Flat Earth Society. Yet, he says, Christianity calls forth the deepest emotions, even and especially in the ones who most reject it. Isn't that so strange? Many have remarked about Richard Dawkins, that he's so, con so concerned. He writes book after book about how God is a delusion. Again and again, you know, and he writes all these books, all this effort. Well, if God isn't there, what's the problem? You know, what's, what's your... Again and again. G.K. Chesterton said this, As I read and reread all the non-Christian or anti-Christian accounts of the faith from Huxley, a slow and awful impression, says Chesterton, gradually and graphically grew upon my mind. The impression that Christianity must be an extraordinary thing. It was attacked on all sides and for all contradictory reasons. What they're saying is simply this. You don't attack something that you don't think is a threat. And so when Jesus comes as king, whether it's for Herod, or whether the gospel comes to the United States of America, or whether the gospel comes into your life, into your family, into the church, and Jesus is proclaimed as Lord and King. Oh, yes, he, some will fall down and worship, but there will also be opposition, you see, to the King. But in this opposition to the King, we find here in Matthew chapter 2 that God's Word is fulfilled. The fact is that as you read through Matthew 2, 13 to 23, in the midst of the wickedness, despite the hatred, sin, violence, murder, through the opposition, uh, and uh, though the opposition is fierce and determined and relentless, the Bible says again and again that God's word is fulfilled, and this too is Matthew's burden. Yes, there is opposition to King Jesus, but even in that opposition, God's word is being fulfilled. So Herod seeks to destroy Jesus, forcing his family to flee. In the middle of the night, by the way, under cover of darkness. And then verse 15 says this, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That was by the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11 verses 1 and 2. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Herod wickedly kills the boys to and under Bethlehem and the surrounding 
region. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This was about the exile. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And when Joseph and Mary and Jesus return to Israel, they are warned not to go to Bethlehem and withdraw to Nazareth uh, that nobody's heard of before in Galilee. Instead, verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Are you getting the idea here? This was to fulfill, then was fulfilled, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Remember chapter 1, verse 22? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet regarding uh, the conception of Jesus. All this. Which means for you and I, that God is never surprised. The worst opposition to the king, the most wicked persecution, all the most wicked deeds here of Herod, and the crucifixion, of course, of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus himself, and whatever else the evil one may throw at you or me, or the church cannot stop God's word, what he has spoken, from being fulfilled. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 76. He reflects on these things. Psalm 76, 4. Glorious are you, Lord, more majestic than the mountains, full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger's roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. You know what that's saying? That's saying even the most wicked opposition to the king, even though it is directed to destroy Jesus, even though it is directed to destroy the church, like persecution of the church and the martyrdom of Christians, even though those who kill Christians think they can destroy the work of God, and even though the tempter thinks that he can destroy you with trials and temptations, uh, the Bible says even the wrath of man against Jesus, against Christians, against the church, against God himself, even the wrath of man shall praise you. That is, even the wrath of man is under the sovereign God who works out all things according to his purpose. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to realize this. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar, who was rather boastful for a time, until the Lord humbled him. And then Nebuchadnezzar said this in Daniel 4.34, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none, right? None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? None can stay his hand. And of course, Paul comforts us with that truth, doesn't he? In Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you might say to yourself, well, lots of folks. <laughs> you know, I got lots of folks against me. Don't like me. Um, you know, don't like that I'm a Christian or don't like that I try to live for the Lord. What's Paul talking about? Well, he doesn't mean that there won't be people against you. What he means that uh, if God is for you, who can possibly be against you and uh, hurt you or do anything to you when God is for you? Oh, yes, there are people who don't like you. There are people who try to hurt you. They even try people who to persecute you, and they will. But if God is for you, none of that matters because even that opposition against you will be used for the praise of God. We see it in this passage already. Despite Herod's desire to destroy Jesus. Did you notice it? Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He dies. It is not Jesus friends, and his church who perish, but all those who stand in opposition to the king. Listen to uh, J.C. Ryle. True Christians should never be greatly moved by the persecution of man. I read something this morning about the you know, professing Christians in Nigeria and, uh, and, and uh, some Muslims coming into that church building and, and killing 50 people, including, including many children. True, true Christians should never be greatly moved by the persecution of man. Their enemies may be strong, and they may be weak. But still, they ought not to be afraid. They should remember that the triumphing of the wicked is but short. What has become of the pharaohs and Neros and Diocletians, who at one time fiercely persecuted the people of God? Where is the enmity of Charles IX of France, he's English, and Bloody Mary of England? They did their utmost, like Herod, to cast the truth down to the ground, but the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are dead and moldering in the grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler. Listen to this. Death is a mighty leveler and can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. The Lord liveth forever. His enemies are only men. The truth shall always prevail. You believe that? Here's great. Yes, the wise men. But yes, here comes opposition to the king. Wicked opposition. So that, that, that two-year-old boys in, under, in Bethlehem and the whole region are, are put to death in the hopes that Jesus might be among them. Jesus himself is forced to flee with his family in the dark of night, even though he's the Savior. He's God with us. He's the king. And even when they return, they can't go back to Bethlehem and they, they're just sent out to Galilee instead. And yet, through it all, the word of God 
is being fulfilled. Now, if you believe that, that uh, you know, the truth never fails despite opposition to the king, well, first of all, you'll praise him because you know he created you in his image to know him and, and love him and you belong to him and, uh, and you will forever belong to him. You will repent of your sin because you know you've rebelled against him and he's come as your savior. Uh, you'll trust in Jesus Christ as your savior for there's no other name, the Bible says, given under heaven by which we must be saved. The truth must prevail. You will love and obey him because your greatest desire is to please the one who has set you free and given you new life. And you will not be discouraged or destroyed or disheartened or defeated by the worst attacks of Satan against you, the church, or the Lord himself because Matthew 2 tells us he will fulfill his purposes. And if he's for us and the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, his promised return says he is, who can stand against us? You see, opposition to the king, God's word is fulfilled. This is why Martin Luther could write 495 years ago and it still be true today for us. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing for still Today, that is, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be? Christ Jesus. It's he. Lord Sabaoth is name. From age to age, age to age, the same. And he must win the battle, though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. You ever feel threatened by, <laughs> by the powers that be? To undo the church. No more marriage. Um, you know, no more, no, more, no more Christian marriage. No more Christian sexual ethic. No more Christian morality in America. It's just it, the devil will win, is what we're told. Should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed <laughs> his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure, just as it was for Herod. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. They would love to stamp out the word of God, the enemies of God. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, remember this is the gospel of the kingdom, his kingdom of the true king is forever. Friends, don't ever doubt God's word will be fulfilled. Jesus will reign forever and ever. It's not Jesus and his church who will be destroyed as Herod desired, but all those who remain in unbelief and stand in opposition to the king. 
unless they repent. For as we will see next time, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message is, repent, turn, right? Turn away from this opposition to the king who has come to establish his kingdom. May we bow before him uh, even tonight. May we go forth and serve him this week, confident that though there is opposition to him, opposition to us, opposition to the church, oh, the Lord's word will never fail. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, how we need your encouragement. Lord, the world does not want to encourage us to trust you. The world does not want us to have a strong conviction that your word is truth and never fails. Oh Lord, the opposition to the king wants us to give up on Jesus, give up on the faith, give up on worship, give up on serving Christ wants us to pursue everything else that it holds out to us as a way of blessing, wants us to be kings of our own lives, our own Lord, our own Savior, our own Master, and to reject the only King who can save us. So, Heavenly Father, we pray tonight that for us gathered here, as we remember again that your word is truth, will never fail, the gospel is truth. Oh, Lord, send us out tonight into this week, confident in you, trusting in you, empowered by your Holy Spirit to live what we believe. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.